wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm going to say this this morning. Um, Christ Presbyterian Church, your elders love you. Bill started texting and calling me on Wednesday to prepare for that prayer. Mike does the same thing. Blake does the same thing. Our elders love you, and they love praying for you. Be thankful for them. Last week, we were in Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm sure all of you remember that sermon. Okay. And so, because all of you remembered that sermon, I was going to give us a short recap, but also talk about where we are in the story, in God's great story of the redemption of his people. You'll remember way back in Genesis, God established his kingdom on earth. And he placed his king and queen in his kingdom, and he gave them the command to rule over it, to subdue it, to have dominion, and to be fruitful and multiply within it. And then his king rebelled. His king rejected his calling. The earthly king rejected the sovereign rule of the heavenly king. And the earthly king became an unfaithful king. But you remember, even in that king's unfaithfulness, the heavenly king promised that he would remain faithful. And you remember what he promised them. He promised them that he would give them a child. A child would come. He would overcome their faithlessness. He would overturn the rebellion and death and destruction that followed, that he would bring peace by defeating their great enemy and reconciling them back to the great heavenly king. And from that promise, God's people waited. They waited the birth of this child. They waited during the times of Abraham, who longed for a child. They waited during the times of Moses and asked themselves, Is this the child? And of course, they had to answer, no, he wasn't. The people were waiting during the times of Hannah, when Hannah longed for a child. And the people asked themselves again, was this the child? No, he wasn't. Then during the times of David, we remember the promise given to David, correct? He was promised a son whose kingdom would have no end. His kingdom, like Adam's kingdom, was intended to be and would establish a kingdom where the Lord would rule justly and rightly over his people. And you remember what was embedded in that promise? This is what the Lord said to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. This was the son that Israel longed for. And if I bring this back and you remember from Isaiah 7, what were God's people promised 
in light of the faithlessness of their king, a promised son. And you remember what this kingdom faced, what the southern kingdom of Judah faced. They faced the two kingdoms from the north, Israel and Syria. They had joined together and they were threatening to overcome the kingdom of Judah. And what would happen if king of Judah was overtaken? The promises of God would not be fulfilled. For the kingdom of Judah is overtaken. How will his kingdom be established forever? And so the Lord came to Ahaz and pleaded through the prophet Isaiah. He said, ask for anything so that I can show you how much I love you and how much I will be faithful to my covenant promises. But what happened to Ahaz? Well, Ahaz had made up his mind. He declined the offer. He decided to not trust in God, to not trust in his power or his might. Instead, he would choose to trust in the power of man. And so, even in his faithlessness, even though he rejected God's promise and sign to him, God made a promise to the entire house of David. And we heard of God's unrelenting love and grace for his people. He promised, therefore, the Lord himself will give you, y'all, God's people, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the sign that God is prepared This is the sign that God prepared to say, no matter what happens, I will go at any length to make sure my promises will come to pass. Even miraculously, I will cause a virgin to have a son. My promises will come true. If you believe in the promises of God, you will be saved. These are the promises that Yahweh makes to his people. And you remember what happens? 600 years later, his words came true. This is why Matthew connects this promise of the sign with Isaiah 7. When in Matthew 1, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's promises came true even in light of Israel's unfaithlessness, unfaithfulness. And before we begin in chapter 9, I want to give us just a short summary of chapter 8. And Miss Mary read half of that for us. But what we see in chapter 8 of Isaiah is this connection between Isaiah and 7, Isaiah chapter 9, is we're presented with this stark contrast those people who have no faith and those people who do have faith. This contrast of the people who have no faith, God says that he will bring against them the waters of the mighty river and will come up to their necks as though they are drowning. These people of faithlessness, they will pat, someone will come over there, the Assyrian army will come over them and pass by them and they will destroy them. And what does he say? God's face will be hid 
from them. They will search for their own strength. They will search for their own power. They will search for their own means of salvation. But all they will find is darkness. But God also promises to those of faith that the Lord will give them a sign, that the Lord still dwells on Mount Zion. The Lord is faithful. And so we, when we come to Isaiah 9, we have these two people. One, a people who hope in the promises of God, waiting for this sun to come, and the other, a people completely overcome by darkness. A people who have no hope. A people who are in trouble of being cast out forever. For this is what Isaiah said in verse 22 of chapter 8. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the context of Isaiah 9. This is where Isaiah 9 comes in, to, in the midst of the entire story of Scripture. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. Where God is continually faithful, even when his people are faithless. That God comes to his people, and he showers them with unconditional love and mercy and grace. This is where we come to Isaiah 9. As we come to this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word. Lord, use my feeble preparation and my words to bring life to your people, to edify us, to strengthen our faith, that we might serve our great King through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. In the Northern Hemisphere, we experience winter during the Christmas season. And in winter, we don't only experience colder weather, we also experience the darkest days of the year. In fact, coming up, we will experience winter solstice. It will actually happen on December 21st, at 10.27 p.m. And on that day of the year, there is the least amount of daylight in the northern hemisphere than any other day. It happens because the point at which the path to the sun in the sky is the farthest to its south because the earth tilts on its axis at an angle of 23.5 degrees. On winter solstice, Alaska will not see the sun. In Washington, D.C., they will only have 9 hours and 26 minutes of daylight. In Memphis, we will only have 9 hours, 47 minutes, and 20 seconds of daylight. The sun will rise at 7.04 and will set at 4.41 p.m. On winter solstice, we will experience 14 hours of darkness. This is the longest night of the year, it is when we will have the most darkness. And thank goodness for Christmas lights. During these darkest days, Christmas lights show us the contrast 
of the darkness that we live in. The bright colors and lights during Christmas almost anticipate that someday the darkness will be overcome. The Christmas lights fill the darkness of night. This is what's happening in Isaiah 9. Isaiah is testifying the word of the Lord for those who have little faith, who are experiencing a simple who aren't experiencing just a simple winter solstice, they are experiencing the reality of the darkness and the gloom of their sin. But you'll notice the first word of chapter 9 is but. A conjunction. This is a linking word. Isaiah is linking the darkness of what they've experienced, of what's happening to their past, and yet Isaiah isn't leaving the people there. For this is what he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, they were on the northernmost part of the tribes of Israel. They were the first countries or the first territories that were invaded from these armies of the north that were coming down. And Isaiah contrasts their being overcome by darkness by the dawning of the light of God. And what we should immediately see here is that chapter 9, Isaiah is using what is called a prophetic perfect. You'll notice, as we saw last week, Isaiah is speaking of something that will, that will happen in the future. But notice the tense in what he says. He says as though these future events have already occurred. He speaks of the future as if it happened in the past. And Isaiah is only able to do this because he trusts in the sovereignty of his God. He is able to say this because he knows that the things of the future are as good as done because God is in control of all things. There is no possibility that God's promises will not come to pass for his people. Think of this reality. Think if we lived in this reality of the prophetic perfect. These people were seemingly going to be overrun by an invading army. They were being overwhelmed by a very real threat. And the Lord sends to them a prophet and speaks of their future as though it's complete and it's a bright future. Like Christmas lights shining in the darkness. Maybe you don't have to think very hard about an overwhelming circumstance. But notice... It's in the overwhelming circumstance where God meets his people. He doesn't go after the people who have it all together. No, he goes after them when they're in the darkness. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness. The people who have experienced the darkness, who have experienced these overwhelming difficulties. It is to this people that God shines his light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It comes to a people who have nowhere else to look. It comes to people like us. (coughs) People who don't have their acts together. People who are constantly and continually looking to our own strength 
to overcome our own difficulties. But people who are faced with being cut off because of our sinfulness. But listen to the promise that God gives these people. God will multiply his people. He will multiply the nations. He has increased its joy. They rejoice before us, before you as a joy of the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. It is God who has acted on behalf of his people. Just as in Genesis 1, just as he brought order out of chaos, what is the first thing that he spoke into existence? Light. He speaks light into the darkness. So too again here, he's bringing light into the darkness of the world, overrun by sin and destruction and death. This is exactly where the Gospel of John begins. The word of the Lord who was with God and the word that was God, what has he done? In him was light, or in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Lord meets us when we could not and cannot do anything for ourselves. If we were left to our own strength, we would remain in darkness forever. Isn't it interesting? Do you remember where Jesus' ministry began? Matthew tells us. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that it might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. And do you remember what he did when he went into those territories? Do you remember what he said? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us and he brought forth the kingdom of God and preached the gospel of peace. This is what Christ has done for his people. This is what Christ does when he meets us in the darkness. He preaches of the coming kingdom of God for his people. And then Isaiah continues, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the days of Midian. And I'm, I know all of you know exactly what the day of Midian was, so I dare not remind you to turn your Bibles to Judges 6 to be, to, to be reminded. In the days of Midian, Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered by sending a prophet. And he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the house of the Egyptians and from the head of all of who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Am Amorites in, in whose land you dwell. But then this is what he said. But you have not obeyed my voice. Again, the people experience God's great act of redemption. And yet again, they are faithless. But do you remember how God responded to them in their faithlessness in Judges 6? 
He sent Gideon, a weak man Gideon. He used someone who was weak to bring salvation. He used something that was weak to show that he was strong. The Lord himself took upon him the yoke of their burden. By his staff and his rod, he led them. This is a picture of the great shepherd of the sheep. Who makes his sheep lie down in green pastures by still waters. He restores them. Even though they walk through the valley, the shadow of death, they do not fear. For the Lord their God is with them. His, ra- his rod and his staff, he comforts them. It is the Lord who overthrows the enemies of his people. For every boot and every tramping, tra- and every tramping warrior is uh, in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah is testifying the word of the Lord to his people. This is what the Lord has done for you. Have faith in the Lord. Have faith in his promises, for he is faithful. And where are these promises fulfilled? Well, Isaiah tells us in verse 6, in the promised child. The promise of the child in Isaiah 7 is built on all the promises of the coming child. It will be a child born, a son will be given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It is through this Son that God will dispense his grace upon his people. It is through this... promised child, that the government, David's kingdom, his entire kingdom will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. This word wonderful is a word that's used to describe the wonderful acts of God as he redeemed his people out of Egypt. This is how Moses is saying of God's salvation in Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? This is a supernatural act revealing the power and the might of God. You might remember how the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. You are the God who works wonders. You have known your, we have known your might among the peoples. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zan. If you've ever had a good Counselor. We can see how this wonder is matched. These wonderful acts of God, empowered in display, are given through a counselor. Someone who always knows exactly what to say and when to say it. And of course, when you think of a good counselor, you all, you're like me and you think of Amanda Raspberry. Miss Amanda. If your student goes to Fayette Academy, you know that as soon as chaos breaks out, as soon as the weights of the world are felt upon the student's shoulders, when life feels overwhelming, who does everybody call? 
Miss Amanda, her presence bring a calming peace, for she has good counsel. She brings good wisdom. Don't you remember the interactions of Jesus? Every time Jesus met somewhere, no matter where he was, he knew what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. These were acts of wonder, not in glory as they were in Exodus, but they were acts of his mighty power, that he is a wonderful counselor. He met everybody where they were, and he brought the gospel. Contrast this wonderful counselor to Ahaz. Because what did Ahaz do when he needed a wonderful counselor? He went to the king of Assyria and rejected his God. This child will be called Wonderful Counselor. This child will also be called Mighty God. Not like Mighty God, but Mighty God himself. This child is to be identified as God himself. Jeremiah uses the same phrase in reference to the creator of the covenant. This child is God himself, fullness of God and helpless babe. In this child, God is coming to his people to dwell among them. And again, this is where the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. In this child, our God will come and tabernacle in the midst of his people. We will not be left to suffer the darkness. He will also be called Prince of Peace. As Bill said earlier, our world knows war. Even after the war that was supposed to end all wars in World War II, we still experience war throughout the world. And what our world actually seeks when they claim they want world peace isn't what this gospel offers us. Because what the world expects of world peace is just the absence of war. But no, this isn't the peace this isn't the peace that this God brings us. We want peace in Israel. We want peace in Ukraine. But what the Prince of Peace gives is he repairs everything damaged by sin. He doesn't just make wars cease. He makes sure that everything is functioning and flourishing as they were supposed to be in the garden. He is our Prince of Peace. He is also called Everlasting Father. In this name, we can look at it from several different aspects. 
But for anyone who has had a good father, think of what having a father who is everlasting. Think of having a father who no matter where he finds us, runs to us. A father that will sacrifice the best calf on our return. A father who looks upon us and is proud and loves us because who we are. This child will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the prince of peace. When he comes, he brings perfect shalom. This is what Jesus said. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, but as I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Look at what Isaiah says next. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It has been established. God will do it. This is what the angels proclaimed when they came. Peace on earth. Because peace isn't a thing. Peace is found in the person of Christ. He has brought light into the darkness when we should have been cast out, when we should have been cut off. He carried our burdens and he nailed them to the cross. He established his king kingdom forever by defeating our great enemy, by defeating our death and our sin, and he will take away our pain forever, and his kingdom will have no end. In the confusion of our world, God did the perfect thing. He sent a wonderful counselor. In the midst of our weakness, God did a perfect thing. He gave us the mighty God. In our loneliness, in our isolation, he provided the everlasting Father. In the midst of our chaos, the Prince of Peace brings shalom. He is the good shepherd who will lead his sheep, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And real quick, and I'll, I'll, I'll end on this. How did the people respond? Right? From verse 1 through verse 7, almost everything describes what God will do for his people. But notice in verse 3 how the people respond. They rejoice, for you have brought the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. They rejoice because everything they need to flourish has been provided by this king. They, d- they divide the spoils, the earnings from the victory of over their enemies. What Christ, this is what Christ has done for his people, that we might rejoice in the gospel. There's nothing else for God's people to do. It's been done in Christ, the promised child. Come to him by faith. 
come receive these signs and seals of God's faithfulness. He came in helpless babe in weakness to show forth his might and his wonder. He is the Lord of hosts. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, feast on the word made flesh. He came into our darkness. He saved us from our sins. He defeated our enemies. His kingdom has no end. It is finished in Christ. Let's pray.